All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick in order to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Hello everyone and as you know our number one goal here on making the argument is to equip you with the arguments you need to win the debate and have constructive conversations but it's not just about winning arguments because it's also critically important that we actually know what we believe why we believe it and then how to defend it and while I would love to sit here and think that we do a great job in each episode of executing this goal we can't possibly believe that without receiving your feedback and input. So Hamilton and I have been discussing for a long time what the best way to communicate with you directly might be. And of course, there are things like Facebook groups, Telegram channels, and discords, but all of these are excellent one-way forms of communication. One of us sends a message to the channel, you all see it, maybe reply, but they all lack the actual face-to-face -face interaction needed for us to really know who you are and understand the conversations and debates that you're having with family, friends, and coworkers. Winning the debate can simply consist of you listening to the podcast on Tuesdays and Thursdays. In order to really prepare yourself for the mental battle you're heading into, you have to be able to participate in conversations with other people. And that brings me to my next point. Hamilton showed me an app called Volley a few weeks ago, and we haven't seen anyone else using it in this space, and it's pretty incredible. Essentially, it's an app that allows our team here in the studio to chat face-to-face -face with you at any time with individual video messages. But not only are we able to chat with you face-to-face, -face, you're going to be able to chat with anyone else who listens to the podcast and is a member of our Volley channel. I know Hamilton is very excited because he wants to be able to go to you all before each episode that we record and get your thoughts on that episode's topic. As an example, I know he's planning to jump in tonight and get your ideas on The Great Reset, which we will be discussing in this Thursday's episode. Myself, Tina, Christian, and Hamilton will all be active there looking forward to discussing these topics with you. Remember, if we genuinely believe in the principles of liberty, then we do have an obligation to be able to make the best argument we can in order to win the hearts and minds of the people around us. So please take this next step, click the link in the description of this podcast, and we'll see you in our volley chat to continue the discussion there. And once again, thank you. Welcome back. And on this episode of Making the Argument, we're going to discuss the Dutch uprising. That's right. If you didn't know, there's actually a huge protest going on in the Netherlands right now because of some things the Dutch government has done, which could lead to the stealing of farmland from literally tens of thousands of farmers over there. And we're going to talk a little bit about why they're doing this, what the farmers' response is, and what the government's response is to what the farmers are doing. It's going to be an interesting episode. All that more coming up on this episode of Making the Argument. We appreciate you joining us for this hour. If you walk away understanding more about how to make the argument for what you believe, I hope you'll let us know in the YouTube comment section. and leave for you on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. 
All right, as always, I am your host, Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates, but other than that, a fairly good person. With us, as always, my beautiful bride, Tina, Queen of the Bees. Hello, everyone. Our resident historian and political prognosticator, Christian Hines. Hello. And then, of course, producer of producers, Nicholas Hamilton, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like central banking. Hello. All right. I think I'm saying that quicker every episode. <laughs> yeah, it's like, because time is money. Money's time. Let's do this. All right. So <laughs> if, you are, if you've been paying attention on what's going on the last week or so, huge protests going on in the Netherlands. And you might be thinking to yourself, Nick, why is this relevant to me here in the good old US of A? Well, we're going to explain all that. Let's go to this first article and just kind of give you some insight. And uh, my gosh, the uh, the article kind of says it all in the headline, explained why Dutch farmers are holding protests over emissions. Okay, so here's what happened. The European Union has these guidelines um, with respect to global warming, climate change, and a lot of that has to do, we've all heard about this stuff on limiting carbon emissions, um, you know, trying to come up with different schemes where different companies can trade carbon credits, et cetera. Well, now they're also including nitrogen into this because nitrogen is a big part of fertilizers that are used in farming. And, uh, and it can have adverse effects on groundwater, soil, you know, water runoff, things of that nature. And so the government of the Netherlands decided that, well, we're going to crack down on this. And so they want to cut, they want to drastically cut their nitrogen um, emissions and, and, or the use of nitrogen, et cetera, by 2030. And in order to do this, they're actually putting restrictions on farming, which could cause somewhere in the neighborhood, I think it's 30%, scroll down a little bit, they might actually, there, there might be some updated numbers on this, but I want to say it was around 30% of Dutch farms could be forced out of production, out of their current production. Um, in fact, wait a second, here we go. Uh, what is the government proposing? Okay, the ruling coalition wants to cut emissions of pollutants, predominantly nitrogen, oxide, and ammonia by 50% nationwide by 2030. Ministers call the proposal an unavoidable transition that aims to improve air, land, and water quality. They warn that farmers will have to adapt or face the prospect of shuttering their businesses. So again, this, this is affecting... We're not talking about like four farms here in the Netherlands. We're talking about tens of thousands right. of farmers being affected by this. And what you need to understand, because a lot of people are thinking, well, the Netherlands, I mean, that's a you know, fairly small country. And it is. It's something like, I think, half the size of New Jersey. I mean, it's, it's fairly small. It's densely populated, though. Densely populated, but fairly small. But it is the second largest agricultural producer in the world. Wow. Exporter. 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 Sorry, sorry. Exporter yeah. in the world after the United States. After and they are doing this by the directive of the EU, not just because the Netherlands wants to do this. So so you got to understand, it's not like the Netherlands has to do it this way. The EU puts out these you know, objectives and whatnot. And, and again, this is one of the ways that the government either like they help you or hurt you based off of regulations, subsidization, things like that. But the but the Netherlands has decided to just like hammer home on this. And so we're now talking, but but again, here's the interesting part. There's there's two components to this that aren't as obvious. Um, but once you do a little bit of thinking, you realize, oh my gosh, what the heck is going on? The first one is these this is the same EU telling everybody that we're on the cusp of experiencing potential famine in certain certain parts of the globe because of the war in Ukraine. Right? So because Ukraine, which is one of the breadbaskets of Europe, right, big wheat production, things of that, grains, et cetera, because that's essentially out of commission right now, this, they're warning, oh, my gosh, we're, we could potentially have it. At the same time that they're talking about confiscating all of this farmland 
in the Netherlands in order to cut their overall use of nitrogen and ammonia and other you know, farming you know, fertilizer-associated products. Now, what you also need to understand is that there's also been a big push within the current government within the Netherlands to take immigrants and refugees, right? Which nothing in and of itself wrong with that. However, they're having issues because once again, small country, densely packed, they're having issues with respect to housing. Really? And lo and behold, the same people that are pushing to meet these 2030 deadlines, to meet these 2030 goals, and to literally confiscate this farmland, um, oh, I'm sure they'll pay people for it. They'll pay people for farmland they don't want to sell. Are then also proposing that that, that gosh, wouldn't that be a great place to be able to set up affordable housing for the influx of people coming into the Netherlands. So you have a government which is pushing this idea. And the whole concept is we got to save the planet. So we got to cut down nitrogen at the same time. They're acknowledging that we could be facing major food shortages and rising food costs as a result of supply chain issues, inflation, and what's going on in Ukraine at the same time that they have an influx of people coming into the country that they need to find housing for. And people are coming to, I would suggest, the not-so-crazy conclusion that maybe this isn't just about saving the planet. Maybe this is about a particular government within the Netherlands deciding that they needed good, a good excuse to confiscate farmland, not to mention the fact that this is also tied to something else we're going to discuss a little bit later that has to do with trying to let's say use COVID and everything that's going on to push people in a different direction with respect to their diet, with respect to agriculture, with respect to livestock. And so there's a lot of people looking at this going, you are literally going to rip our livelihoods away from us in, in order to push this particular agenda. And they're not very happy about it. And to prove it, let's go ahead and go to our second article. And this is Dutch farmers form freedom convoys to protest the government's strict environmental rules. So as you can imagine, farmers are not taking this line down. In fact, you're talking about 400,000 farmers gathering together. And again, you got to remember, this is in a much smaller country. So 400,000 fa farmers gathering to protest this is significant. And when I say protest, I don't mean, you know, they, they rallied around the government square for a couple of days with placards saying, you know, let us farm. I mean, like they brought their tractors and combines. They shut down roads. Um, I mean, they they have just I mean stopped production in certain things so that people are actually feeling this at the grocery stores so they can actually get a, a a taste, no pun intended, of what it looks like when agricultural production in the Netherlands is shut down significantly. Um, but and and a lot of people are comparing it to what what went on in Canada with the Freedom Convoy up there. Um, but again, it's. This is, this is a significant protest movement, and it, it's gaining a lot of traction. You know, one thing that I've noticed is, and it's, it's really, I mean, it's been going on for a couple of years now, but it's really picked up lately, is that you're seeing more and more of these, like, protests against entire governments and, and economic plans. We saw it, in, as you said, we saw it in February with the truckers in Canada, um, and, and, even though they didn't topple Trudeau, they did topple the leader of the conservative party. Mm -hmm. And now they've got an open position where, you know, people are trying to fill that to take on Trudeau in the next election. And they've also toppled the government in Sri Lanka, Yeah, which there's actually, 
today we're talking a lot about the Netherlands, but there's actually, if you look into it, there's a lot of overlap in some ways between now, now they're different economies. They're different yeah. levels of development. Sri Lanka is a developing economy, but, but a lot of the stuff that's happening in the Netherlands also took place in Sri Lanka. So it's the reason that we're talking about the Netherlands here is because there's a lot of similarities between the Netherlands and the United States in terms of they're both developed countries, they're they're both relatively wealthy countries, and they're both trying to impose these top-down rules. But don't walk away from this episode thinking that this is just a little flashpoint in some little tiny country in Europe. That this is a broader issue that is popping up all over the entire world and has been for what, two or three years now? Two years, basically? Yeah. yeah. Well, no, and, and I mean, that is the point, right? This is this is not some, we're, when, if it would have just been the Freedom Convoy up in Canada, yeah. that would have been interesting. But it's the Freedom Convoy in Canada. It's it's the people in Sri Lanka that, you want to talk about storming a capital or storming a presidential palace? The, the people in Sri Lanka did it and stayed until they got what they wanted. And even when um, the, the president and the prime minister said they would step down, they said, cool, we'll wait here until you do. Like, I mean, it was, it was legit. They were not leaving until they had new leadership within their government. And what's interesting about Sri Lanka is that even though it's a developing country, if you look at it regionally, their GDP per capita is actually doing pretty well comparatively, comparatively yeah. with respect to the region. Until this economic crisis, Sri Lanka was one of the faster growing economies yeah. in the region. Again, they're not as wealthy as the Netherlands, yeah. but, but they had been moving in the right direction until recently. And what I find so fascinating about this topic is that the same sort of economic policies and central planning and, and government dictates that basically collapsed the economy in this developing country in Southeast Asia, there's a lot of overlap between that and what they're trying to do in the Netherlands. And, and it's so surprising that in a time when we're talking about potential food shortages it, related to many things, COVID, the economic collapse, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which is also one of the world's largest agricultural exporters. It's incredible that at the same time, you've got the government in the Netherlands that is basically trying to shut down up to 30% of all the farms in the second largest agricultural exporter in the world. Mm -hmm. It makes absolutely no sense. It makes no sense. Well, it, it's interesting too, because as you read up on this, you look at the Netherlands. I mean, it, again, I'm, I'm going to read this off right here. The Netherlands has a strong agrarian and life sector sec livestock sector, which produces significant agricultural exports. And the country is the second largest exporter of agricultural products in the world after the United States. Again, that is fascinating because the United States is enormous. Yeah. Um, Anyways, since the mid-2000s, climate activism and animal rights activism become more commonplace in the Dutch House of Representatives and general political discourse of the Netherlands, especially with the emergence of the Party for the Animals as a political force within the Netherlands. But again, so much of this seems to be tied. And, and I think it's also interesting to point out here that there always seems to be like a rural and urban battle battle with respect to things like this. Yeah. I mean, you really, you literally have some people that think their food just shows up packaged at the grocery store. The food fairy delivers it to and, your and local. No idea the amount of time, effort, work, labor, risk that goes into producing all of this. And, and the same people driving around with things that say, you know, farmland lost is lost forever are the same ones that want to bulldoze it, put up like industrial solar fields, or they want to put up, you know, you know, cheap urban housing or I, suburbs. Can I, can I get you to briefly talk about that? Because I do think that that this can give our audience a little bit of idea of what's going on in the Netherlands, because we had something similar in Virginia where 
when the Democrats were in control of the state legislature, they were trying to do certain things to rural oh, Virginia they didn't, they didn't with solar try. farms. They didn't try. They did it. it. It was called the Virginia Clean Economy Act. And what's interesting is that it didn't have the same it didn't have the same sort of thing that you're seeing right now in the Netherlands, where the government literally came in and said, if you can't match these numbers by 2030, right, you're losing your farm or, or you can't produce anymore. Yeah. Well, what happened in Virginia is they passed the Virginia Clean Economy Act, which told Dominion Power and the other power producers within Virginia that so much like a, a certain percentage had to be renewable resources by a certain time. Okay, well. Do you think they went into urban areas and bought up a lot of like really expensive urban territory in order? No, they came out to agricultural areas. They came out to forested areas and they bought them at reduced rates. And then a lot of it was foreign companies that would come in, buy up the property because they would get the initial subsidy in order to, to do all of this. Bulldoze the trees. Bulldoze the tree. I mean, and when we're talking tens of thousands of acres of farmland and forestry destroyed to make way for industrial solar fields that everybody admitted was not going to meet our energy needs. So th this was the way we were going to save the environment was by bulldozing it yeah. and, and just, you know, destroying agricultural output. Mm -hmm. And, and again, they, you know, they punish what they don't like. So at the same time they were doing this, they were putting increased penalties and increased restrictions yeah. on farmers when it came to the amount of fertilizer they were using, what they were using, because they always blame the, you know, Chesapeake Bay issues on our farmers, even though if you actually dig into it, you're going to find that a, a lot of, a lot of the runoff that goes into the Bay, it's not farmers in the Shenandoah Valley. It's DC. It's people fertilizing their guard, their yards, right? Because they want their grass to look nice and green. And then that running off in the gutters going to the stormwater and then going right to the Chesapeake Bay. Well, it's not even just that it's, it's, the sewage runoff from Arlington and Alexandria oh, and DC that we're dumping directly into the, the Potomac. Yeah. It goes right. The reason that I bring this this story up though is because as we're going to get to in this podcast, some of the motivations inherently, not explicitly, but inherently behind the actions that the Democrats initiated in Virginia for for luckily only for two years, but have been pushing in other states like New York and California are some of the best examples of this are very, very similar to what is going on in the Netherlands. And I, I say this because I want our audience to understand that that this is not just something on the other side of the ocean that, oh, it's just some interesting, yeah. neat thing. You know, I'm glad I learned about it, and then I'm going to forget about it in three days. No, no, this is part of a broader narrative that has been pushed on many, many countries, developing, developed, and everything in between. Well, and, and a lot of people, uh, a lot of people that listen to this podcast, watch this podcast, might be familiar with the whole UN Agenda 21. And this was kind of a, a top-down approach that the UN was pushing on governments in order to try to essentially strip property rights. And they had a they had a, a mechanism and they had a kind of like an ideal standard for what, what should urban development look like and what should cities look like and should we have more like high density housing within these urban areas and more land that was essentially put into like non-productive capacity. So it it was um uh like reclamation. Um, or, or it would require the land to just sit and you couldn't do anything with it. And they were, they were subsidizing people to do that. See, that's always the first step. The first step is always, I'm going to pay you to not produce. Mm -hmm. And then when that doesn't do it, they move on to, I'm going to punish you if you do produce. Well, the Netherlands has gone from, we're going to try to incentivize you to do what we want to, we're going to punish you if you do, if you don't do what we want. Yeah. And you can tell because when, when Dutch farmers started to get out of protest, we saw this article come up. And it was police fire on Dutch farmers protesting environmental rules. Now, when you read a little bit more into this, you find that one of the most 
you know, egregious acts of this was the Dutch, Dutch law enforcement. And they're actually, it's interesting. They're making a distinction between local law enforcement and federal law enforcement within the Netherlands. The federal law enforcement has been far more aggressive Mm -hmm. on how they push this. Whereas local law enforcement for obvious reasons is, yeah, I'm probably not going to shoot at my, my buddy Sven, right. (laughs) Who, 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 you know, grows the tulips over there. Um, but the, the federal law enforcement is, is coming in and they actually, there was a, uh, a kid, a 16 year old kid and a tractor tractor tried to go around the police barricade. The police shot at him, missed him by like centimeters. And then they immediately took him into custody. And their official report was he tried to charge our barrier. He tried to run into us with his tractor. Well, modern era, a lot of people got cell phones. They, they took video. video of it. And again, if you if you watch this video, you do not come to the conclusion that this 16-year-old kid was trying to kill a bunch of cops with his tractor. You, you come to the conclusion that, no, actually, he was just trying to get around the barrier. Right? Yeah. He was engaging in a form of civil disobedience. By the way, this is not supposed to be an episode about gun rights, but I just want to remind people briefly, if they don't know, what the gun laws are in the Netherlands. <laughs> Um, so in, uh, in the Netherlands, the only people that can possess a firearm are effectively law enforcement. Yeah. Um, you can get a gun if you're a hunter or you're a collector, but it's heavily, heavily restricted. Um, I don't even think it's legal at all to possess a firearm unless you're, I think like 25 in the Netherlands. And this was a 16 year old kid. Um, this is, let's be honest. This is why we have our second amendment rights in the United States, because, all of these farmers, their weapon is their tractor. And yeah. none of these people are using these tractors, despite the, the claims from the government in the Netherlands. None of these people are using these tractors to hurt anybody. Um, like you said, you know, the story was is that, oh, well, he was trying to, like, kill these police officers with the tractor. You can just go back and you can watch the video, and that is that is just patently false. Yeah. Um, none of these farmers are armed. Not a single one of them are armed. None of them have the capacity to inflict any damage whatsoever on their government either aggressively or in an act of self-defense. They are literally defenseless, which is why they're resorting to these these forms of, of civil disobedience yeah. because they don't have any other metrics to defend themselves. They have hey, no they were, means. They were to, just driving around with their tractor and darn thing ran out of gas right in the middle of the intersection. <laughs> and and well, by I, the way, that actually gets me to... Well, wait, let me let me talk about one other thing because you'll find this interesting. Okay. Because, again, they, they've, been, they've been smart about how they've been doing some of these protests. So, for instance, they... They demonstrated early on to law enforcement that they had the capacity to do massive level protests across the country at points of critical infrastructure and things like that. So here's what they did on one of their protests. They told everybody that they were going to launch this massive protest on a Sunday. All right. So why is that significant? Well, because the police all had to, they had to call up all the reserves. They had to call up everybody. They had to put people on overtime. They had to call them up out of their vacations. They had to call them, and they were already at all these different points on Sunday. Guess what happened on Sunday? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> Guess what happened on Monday? <laughs> so, so they actually, they actually, I mean, they were strategically thinking about this and you think about the difficulty of coordinating that kind of, yeah. of protest. Um, but th- they've started looking at, okay, what is, what is an, an essentially, um, you know, disruptive method um, but they're looking at things like that. And, and again, it becomes very difficult for the government to try to impose this when they've got to predict 
what's going to happen versus what's not going to happen. And is it worth your resources? Local departments are looking at this a lot more from the standpoint yeah. of, you know, their law enforcement of their neighbors and, and their friends and their family members. Whereas that's why they're relying more on, on federal law enforcement in, in the Netherlands to come in and try to like pick up the slack, not just for resource allocation, but because there's less of a connection between the law enforcement and the community that they're, you know, sensibly trying to protect. So I'm glad that you brought that up because a question that came to my mind when we first started looking at this topic for a podcast is a question that I, I totally expect anybody who's listening to this episode, if they have a friend on the left or the center left, I'm sure that if this topic gets brought up, the question of, well, how is this different than the Black Lives Matter protests in 2020? And I don't mean the the burning of like cars in, in Minneapolis. I mean the people that were like blocking the highways yeah. with the banners and everything. And and you had um, – there was a discussion in a couple of states. I can't remember the ones off the top of my head. I think Florida was one of them, but they I don't think the bill actually passed. But there was a discussion to like make it legal to drive through the protests yeah. and stuff like that. And 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 – and that was very controversial because uh, – and, and, you know, on one hand, you had people saying we shouldn't make it legal to run over somebody, yeah, right? Yeah. And then on the other hand, you had somebody saying, well, if these protesters are blocking ambulances or police from getting to point A to point B, that's that should be illegal. And yeah. they shouldn't be allowed to impede traffic like that. And so you had this, like, delicate – you know, set of arguments on both sides. And, and to be fair, I think that there's, there's strong arguments on both sides of that equation. Yeah. And because the BLM protests were so politically charged and the battle lines were so clearly drawn between left and right, I don't think that a lot of people were able to look at those two things. You either supported them or you didn't. Mm -hmm. And I want to be intellectually consistent and honest and, and not just disagree with a form of protest because I disagree with the goals of the protesters. And so what would you say is the biggest difference between what's going on with the farmers in the Netherlands in these BLM protests that took place over the last two years? And, and how, where would you, especially since you are a legislator, like where would you draw that line in terms of this is acceptable, legitimate protesting behavior against your government that should be constitutionally protected, and this is illegitimate mob rule? So here, here I think there's actually two distinctions here. So first of all, let, let's talk about the difference between like the BLM protest and, and the farmers protest. I think the BLM protest, now there's going to be a lot of people on the left say, how can you not see it? I'm sorry, but if you look at the statistics, if you look at the modern day statistics with respect to law enforcement engagement, engagement with the population, what you're going to find is, is that a lot of the claims that were made by BLM are like verifiably false. No, black suspects are not just being arbitrarily shot by white cops whenever they feel it's not going on. It's not happening. And then they would they would come out and deliberately lie about things. And and the the brown case was, was the hell hands up don't shoot. When you looked at all the video for that, it's like this. It was obvious that this guy was trying to beat up and take this officer's weapon, and then the officer shot him. And and you see this with other cases as well. Now contrast that now contrast that with other cases where BLM came out and said this was a problem. Like for instance, the the episode that happened down in Georgia. Um, you didn't, you didn't, I mean, you saw people like me and everyone else saying, no, I'm sorry. You, you can't do that. You can't chase down this guy and shoot him. Uh, another like this. example was and that. he got prosecuted and, and they got, they got yeah. you know, convicted of murder. Um, so w one is the distinction on, on what are they actually arguing for? And, and is there a, is there a intellectually rigorous, rigorous argument to be made? And I think that a lot of what BLM was, you know, supposedly protesting, was problematic with respect to the the examples that they were using. 
The second component is how are you protesting? Well, BLM wasn't just blocking roads, right? There were some people who were doing that and there were some protesters. But then you saw this other element um, and, and some of it could have been associated with BLM, some of it associated with Antifa and other groups. But I mean, you're setting businesses on fire, you're looting stores, you're doing things. Okay, that's not going on here, right? So so very, very different um, kind of practical application of what you're protesting. So the first question is, what are you protesting? The second question is, how are you protesting it? Now, I will tell you right now, when the government says, we're going to remove these tractors from an area, or we're going to move, or we're going to prosecute you for practice, I, I think they're enforcing a law which makes sense for them to enforce, right? The, this whole idea that should the government's response to these protests to be, we're no longer going to enforce the law? No, I don't expect that. By the same token, it should cause you to reevaluate the law that you're actually trying to enforce. So we, we have a history of civil disobedience within the United States. And a lot of that civil disobedience was conducted by people that knew they were breaking the law, but thought the law was unjust and therefore it was worth it to break it. Or they were trying to break it in a way that could get the massive amount of attention so people could become aware of what was going on. Yeah. So I, I think it's, again, it's one of those strange areas where you look at, we're like, okay, I understand why the government would say, you, you, we can't have you blocking major traffic and preventing goods from getting to market or people from getting to work or things like that. But when people are willing to be arrested for doing this in such large numbers over something, the question is cost benefit analysis with respect to the protester. Like, is it, is, are there some times where it is morally justified to break the law? Yes. And then the question the government has to answer for themselves is, is the law that is currently being broken is it something that we should be enforcing in the first place? Or is this an indication that maybe we've done something wrong? Now, what I find fascinating is the same statist-loving politicians that will say, you know what? Hey, you're going to block the road with a the tractor? Then we're going to shoot at you. Are the same ones that sit by when someone literally com commits active vandalism against private property owners. Like This is a very important distinction that I think we keep seeing over and over and over again. I had someone ask me about January 6th and she was furious about it. Like, how do you, I said, no, no, no. I, I, I am furious about anybody committing an act of trespass and then damaging public property and going in there and, and trying to intimidate people in order to get what they want. I despise that. I don't care what side does it. It's wrong. It's wrong. However, can you please explain to me why you don't have, you didn't have any of this frustration or anger or outrage over someone burning down half a city block or multiple city blocks and multiple people dying as a result of these protests. And, and what was fascinating was she was like, well, but this is our capital. This is the symbol of us. I'm like, you know what? Maybe that's part of the problem. When, when government buildings and politicians are a symbol of us, but the person that's worked all their life to build that small business that is watching it burn in front of them, not because of anything they did, when you don't have frustration over that, Maybe you're the one with bad priorities. Maybe you're the one that doesn't truly understand what makes the fabric of a community and a country, especially one that's supposed to be comprised of free people. I want to point out the target of the protest. Um, just like what you were just saying about January 6th, you know, at least they were mad at government officials, so they protested the government officials. Um, not saying that everything that transpired was correct. No, clearly it wasn't. But, but also, everyone wasn't there to do what no. the left tries to say they were doing. Um, but what I will say is that nothing says 
you know, take your emissions laws and shove them like flooding the roads with 400,000 tractors <laughs> or people, not tractors. That people. Oh, okay. I thought it was tractors. Um, hundreds, if not yeah, thousands of tractors. Okay, so thousands of tractors probably. Uh, and I don't know about you, but I mean, I come from a farming family. I know how much gas those things <laughs> take. And I mean, they're bringing their combines out there and everything else. And, uh, I would say their issue has to do with emissions. Their protest has to do with emissions and visibility. Now, um, one thing that we didn't point out is that these guys have, the farmers have been um, dealing with their uh, these cuts in emissions and having to take the brunt of, of their envi environmental policy f since the 1990s. So they've had the boot on their neck, basically, telling them, you know, make bricks without straw. And um, they're trying to feed their country and multiple other countries. And these are, I mean, these are farmers, but the people aren't listening. Look at that. 1990s, that's been 30 years that they've been dealing with this. Oh, and that's then- That's gonna make me feel old. And then-, <laughs> and then um, I was reading where they said that um, there are in certain areas, farmers have to reduce their nitrogen emissions by 70%. Yeah, yeah. And that means that they simply have to quit. They have to close down. Oh. Now, I don't, there is something about this that kind of reminds me a little bit of Atlas Shrugged in a way, because I feel like a lot of these people just don't know where their food comes from. And there is, I will say, there is a massive disconnect between urban people and rural people. And urban people have this view. I mean, if, to listen to like Hollywood or anyone else talk about people in rural areas, you would think we were like some other breed of human that uh, the biggest knuckle draggers you've ever seen. And it's like they don't even know where food comes from. And uh, that's, I think, part of the disconnect that these farmers have probably been going through for 30 years. They needed to raise their visibility so that the people in their cities would realize, hey, guess where your food comes from? Well, and I think another interesting part here, and I'll, I'll read from this. The government's proposal aims to have nitrogen oxide and ammonia pollution in the country by 2030. According to government estimates, this could lead to the closure of about 30% of livestock farms in the Netherlands. Now, keep in mind, there's been a huge push against livestock recently. Um, but again, when you're talking about one of the countries that you're depending upon to feed not only the Netherlands, but the world, and especially Europe, I mean, that that's interesting that you're, you're, you're being specific on what you're cutting in order to hit a particular industry, and then you want to confiscate certain property, which you can then use for other government purposes. I mean, yeah, there, there's a reason why. And this goes to the other point about your question. If you get to a point where you have to engage in a particular civil disobedience in, in order to in order to get people to understand the consequences of a particular government action, because running a, we, we talked about this before, right? We don't legislate intentions. We write laws. Yeah. And laws have consequences. And what they're basically doing right now, when they take their when they take a tractor or a combine out of production and block it and they prevent the flow of goods coming into the grocery store from two components. One, there's less goods that they're actually producing. Two, they're, they're preventing the flow of other goods to get in there. They're giving everyone a look, a taste, again, no pun intended, of what it's going to be like when these products are no longer in the grocery store. 
so that now when you decide whether or not you want to back this particular politician and their, their good idea to just, we just want to cut pollution. Okay, well, here's the way they want to cut pollution. Here's what they really want to do with it. And oh, by the way, here's how it's going to affect you on a very, very personal way. And what I find fascinating, because a lot of these recent protests started on June 10th, then 29 June, 4 July, 5 July, on 6 July... Police fired shots at tractor-riding farmers after attempting to blockade a highway in Friesland. Nobody was injured. Some fishermen had begun blockading ports in solidarity with the farmers. By the way, another thing that's worth mentioning is you've got this, but um, the Netherlands also has an inflation crisis, just yeah. like we do currently. Their inflation rate is actually, I think, currently higher than the U.S. Well, and, and they also so and gas over there is eight dollars a gallon. Yeah. I think it, it, now, it granted, just, everybody uses a bicycle because yeah, it's a yeah. small country. <laughs> yeah. But but the, the the point is, is that you know what you were bringing up in terms of like the impact that this is going to happen, you know, ha have on the country in terms of like potential food prices in the second largest agricultural export in the world. That combined with the inflation crisis, because the exact same problem that happened in the U.S. with low interest rates and printing money, the European Central Bank did the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. And the Eurozone is going through an inflationary crisis just like the United States is. And some of these countries are substantially higher. I think it's in the Czech Republic. It's like almost 20% now. Yeah. And it, it's worth bringing this stuff up because when you end up walking away from this episode and thinking, okay, what's happening in the Netherlands is, is wrong. And it's also very similar to certain policies that have happened in other countries like Sri Lanka or countries like the United States or states within the United States – you might end up thinking, who is responsible for this? And I know that you've got a broader narrative, but I want to bring up um, something that, that you know, I don't imagine that the average person can tell you, you know, who the ruling party is in the Netherlands. Well, the, the Netherlands is a multi-party parliamentary constitutional monarchy. It's It's got a similar government as, say, the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. And the current ruling government in the Netherlands is the VVD which is their center-right party. And I bring that up because we do not shy away from taking shots at bad Republicans on this show. Yeah. Um, we are not an explicitly partisan podcast by any means. Um, we all identify as conservatives. We all come from the right in the U.S., but, but that does not mean that the Republican Party, which is r roughly identified as being the, the center-right party in this country, that does not mean that they are not without fault. We've talked about this many, many times, especially on economic things with money printing and stuff like that. And it is worth knowing that it is not simply sufficient to just vote the socialists out of office because the Socialist Party, the Labor Party of the Netherlands, they're not in government. They've got 18 seats between the two of them. The, the current ruling government is the VVD, which is the center-right party in the Netherlands. And it's just worth knowing that that it's not just enough to vote against the explicit left-wing parties. You have to elect people that share your principles within your own party. Mm -hmm. Because some of the some of the greatest advancements of progressivism, left-wing politics, socialism, dare I say it, Marxism, hasn't come from the left over the last 50, 60 years. They've come from the right refusing to stand up and stop it from happening. It's come from people who are complicit on the right. People forget that the EPA, that was a Republican president that set that up. Mm -hmm. 
it, it, it was it was Republicans that said we would abolish the Department of Education because education is a state and local issue. It shouldn't be dictated by Washington, D.C. And when Republicans had the opportunity um, opportunity to do that in the 80s and 90s, they didn't do it. Yeah. It, it, there, there's and, I, and there's so many examples. And, and if we were to talk about Europe, there's so many examples. All of these these left wing regulations shutting down farmers, you know, blocking you know economic growth, intentionally putting policies in place that will make people poor. A lot of these policies in countries like the Netherlands or countries like the United Kingdom are being implemented by the conservative right wing center right party. They're yeah. not being implemented. Like people forget that that in the UK they haven't had a labor government since since 2009. In the Netherlands they haven't had a labor government since at least 2009. The current ruling party and the current prime minister has been in office for 12 years. Yeah, and and so. Again, I just and there's other stuff, too, that I know you're about to get to. But that's just something that, that you've got to remember is that you've got to be careful who you're voting for. You, it's not just enough to vote for the party label. You have to understand the philosophy, the governing philosophy of the people that you're electing and where they're coming from, because party label is not sufficient. No, no, it, it definitely is. And I, and I think this has been proven over and over and over again. And, and more and more what you see is, you know, there's, there's this concept called the Overton window. Right, and the Overton window is what's considered kind of like the the realm of uh, like acceptable or popular political thought from left to right. So when the Overton window shifts in a particular direction, it can take an entire party establishment with it. And I don't just mean the party that's trying to push the Overton window. I mean the other side as well. You saw this a lot with like Elon Musk saying, "I didn't become conservative. You guys went so far to the left that now I'm on the right." Yeah, that's called an Overton window shift. And you've seen this in Europe now where so-called, you know, conservative parties, and it's also important to notice that there's always been a, a fundamental philosophical difference between American conservatism and European conservatism, right? That's kind of the two, same things two different things, yeah. two different things. Do you actually want to briefly explain No, not, what not you for think? this episode. That's okay. when we'll get another one. But the, the point is, is that a lot of these groups that, um, you know, are, are, are so-called conservative or center-right, they're not center-right in the sense that we think of in the United States where right has growingly become associated with this idea of like concepts of individual liberty, private property rights, free market economics. You have a lot of groups over on the, in Europe that are called right that maybe they may think of themselves as being more like patriotic, right. Or, or they believe in more like, you know, um, independence for their own country. But a lot of times that means it's protectionist trade policy, right? That's not what American conservatism is supposed to represent. But, but all this to say, all this to say that, that, what you're seeing happen over in the Netherlands is not exclusive to the Netherlands. It's not exclusive to Canada. It's not exclusive to Sri Lanka. You're seeing it more and more as the government attempts to play this larger role in micromanaging the economy, right? We're not talking about, hey, we're going to put in some health inspection regulation. That's not what we're talking about anymore. We're talking about the government coming down and saying, because the EU has said this, and because we want to do this, we're now going to put you in a position where you can no longer afford to run the farm that has been in your family for 700 years. That's the other side that people don't, I, again, I don't think people fully understand that in, that in the United States, in my district, in Culpeper, Virginia, and Orange County, Virginia, and Madison, Virginia, I can point to people that have been on the same land for over 300 years. Their family has been on that land which is phenomenal when you think about it. That's incredible with the amount that people move and whatnot. When you get to a point where you pass this regulation and it sounds so good to somebody, it's like, oh yeah, yeah, we need to reduce pollution. Okay, fine. 
But if you insist on doing it a particular way, what you're essentially doing is you're telling somebody that may have been farming that same land that you rely on to be able to go into your grocery store and get all the things you want. If that means they have to take 200 acres out of production, that farm is no longer viable and it goes away. It's dead. It's done. They're living off of such thin margins with respect to what they bring to market that you take a couple hundred acres out or you pass this little restriction that you think is minor and that has devastating impacts. You want to talk about supporting the family farm or the, okay, well, how, how the heck do you think that happens when you run them out of business and they have to consolidate or sell off their land to a developer in order to put in an industrial solar field or a subdivision, right? That's what you're doing with this. And people don't seem to understand that that's, that's the practical outcome. And, and a lot of people, as they become more aware of this, they start to ask why. Well, that's a great question. And that leads us to our fourth and final article for this show. And this one comes from the Independent Institute. And we're not going to get into this today because we're going to dedicate an entire episode to talking about this. But the, the title is, What is the Great Reset? Now, whenever you say something like this, the, the immediate reaction from the left, from people within government, is you're engaging in conspiracy theories. Well, anybody that has been watching this show for a while knows we don't flirt with conspiracy theories. We look at facts, evidence, data, we follow a logical conclusion, and then we come to a rational or, or a logical thought process, and we come to a rational conclusion with respect to, okay, is this something that theoretically is possible? Here's what's so f- interesting about the Great Reset. If you look at the World Economic Forum, and if you look at what they've been talking about there over the last several years they've been doing this forum, It is truly fascinating. They actually wrote a book and coined a phrase talking about the Great Reset. And as people started to look into this and look at, okay, well, what are their objectives? And how would you implement policy in order to achieve those objectives? You get things like what's going on in the Netherlands. But the New York Times likes to come back like, oh, this is just some crazy reset theory. How is, or this is some crazy conspiracy theory. How is it a conspiracy theory when the people advocating the policy call it the great reset and then explain in excruciating detail how they plan to achieve it? Now, do you have some people looking at this and then working in their own ideas and working in their own assumptions that might be crazy or off the wall? Absolutely. You're always going to have that. But next episode, Next episode, we're going to do a dive into this and and we're not going to, and here's the part that's going to be fascinating. We're not going to use any of the websites. We're not going to use any of the resources out there, right. That are, you know, like right wing, you know, conspiracy theory blogs or something. We're not going to do that. We're going to look at what they actually say about what they want to do. And then we're going to have a logical discussion about like, okay, if you wanted to achieve this, what sort of economic policies What sort of legislation would be required to do that? Because you either have to incentivize what you want done or you have to punish what you don't want done. And what would that look like? And what would it look like with respect to the private sector and how companies like BlackRock, how would they conduct their business? How would they influence the people that rely upon them for investment dollars and capital investment? How would they do it if they wanted to achieve that? And we're going to have a very logical discussion. And I'm telling you right now, it is eye-opening. It is eye-opening because it perfectly explains why. It perfectly explains why you would look at a country like the Netherlands in the midst of high inflation, in the midst of a war in Eastern Europe that is shutting down one of the breadbaskets of Europe and other parts of the world. 
why a country would decide at that moment in time that we're going to we're going to so we're we're going to engage in economic and environmental policy that is so devastating to our own agricultural sector and economy, but we're going to do it anyway. And everybody else would look at this going, this doesn't make any sense. Even if you thought it was a good idea long-term, it doesn't make sense right now. Why would you do it right now? And it is not because the government of the Netherlands thinks that the ocean is going to swallow its country within the next 10 years or we're all going to die from climate change. It is not because of that. It is because of a very, very different worldview, a very, very different outlook on individual liberty versus central planning and government control. And we're actually going to go into, again, next episode, we're actually going to go into, we're going to make the best argument possible for why they could be doing this. And then we're going to demonstrate why it's utterly ridiculous. I, I wanted to just point out one more headline just for the fun of it, salon.com. Um, now, I mentioned earlier that we have a, a real disconnect between um, the left and right, and oftentimes it's rural versus uh, urban. And one of the things that pushes this disconnect and these stereotypes is media outlets. Certain media outlets will frame up a story in such a way to make sure you're going to walk away with it with with a certain idea. And then that's the knowledge you have of it. And it has caused you to look at all of these people through a certain lens. And Salon.com says far right's latest cause, manure flinging Dutch farmers and the Great Reset. Wow. So so there you go. Not Not at all. Um, But it it, it is wild to me because I do think that there is a cultural shift and a cultural slide. And a lot of times you can kind of see this happening um, in our, in our, our, our our entertainment areas Um, in, I think it was like divergent or something like that in one of those movies. Um, And, at the beginning, she this girl was narrating this sort of apocalyptic thing happening. And she talked about how they were lucky because they were in the city and that would mean they could survive. <laughs> that is the most absurd thing I've ever heard in my life. Because how are you going to survive in an urban setting where you cannot grow any kind of food? I guess you're eating people. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe that's where like Soylent Green comes in and now you're eating people crackers. I'm just saying that um, if if I wanted to usher in a famine and erase part of, of the human population, I would probably implement these policies. It, and that's probably really at the heart of... of the amount of reduction in emissions that they're going for is a lower population. I mean, if you wanted to reduce the population on the earth, mm-hmm. uh, must be hey, they're they doing a great must job. Must be why they hate Elon Musk so much. But <laughs> I think that, you know, you, you look at this and go, okay, some people may have this motive. Some people might be sincere. Like I really love the environment, but I'm an idiot and I don't yeah. know how to save the environment. And I mean, maybe, but you could even just look at some people go in there and go, oh, this is a good way to uh, box these people out of this land that they've been able to hold on to. And we're going to wrestle this back away from them. And I can do whatever I want with it, with this cheap land. And you kind of, I mean, I don't know if anyone has heard of um, 
the there's a Tahoe Environmental Council thing. I can't remember the oh, it's the TRPA. And um, they are well known for regulating people out of their homes. And I mean, they've they can literally conf- confiscate your home if you don't do what they say. And they make it really, really difficult. But if you can grease their palms with enough green, uh, like cash, uh, you can go ahead and get through whatever it is you want. Mm-hmm. And it, it's it's amazing. And that was all done for environmental policies. But then they're being able to confiscate people's you know, homes that they've had for however long and jack up prices. So I just think that this goes so much deeper and there's a lot of different motives. I think we're going to have a lot to talk about on Thursday. We are. Yeah. Nick, I got one question for you before we close out here. So let's say I'm having a conversation about this topic with someone about the Netherlands and they say, well, we still need to do something about climate change. Yeah. What would your response to that be? Well, again, I think whenever you look at a major problem or challenge within society, The first question you have to ask yourself is, is this going to be made better by giving politicians and bureaucrats more control over individual choice, over the marketplace, over property rights? And then what what I like to do is I ask somebody, I've had students ask me this question before, you know, Delegate Freitas, do do you believe that climate change is a big problem? I said, well, let's, let's assume that it is. Okay. That we may have differences of opinion on whether, you know, to the degree that it actually is, but let's assume for a second, you're absolutely right. And this is a major problem and it it requires major action right now. Here's what I would like to I would like to ask. All of the countries that have you know massively interfered within the economy within private property rights that have engaged in central planning to address this issue um, or, or that have just been countries that have this sort of government control that you're saying that you want or you think is necessary over the economy in order to achieve a, a cleaner environment. Can you point to one that you think is a good one for us to, to emulate, like, is it the former Soviet Union? Was it Cuba? Is it communist China? Is it, you know, India under, you know, socialist management? No, they always say Sweden. We it- did a why minute on this related to the environmental catastrophe that the Soviet Union triggered in the RLC. with the RLC, which is a, uh, it used to be one of the largest uh, lakes in the entire world in, in the middle of Central Asia in, in all of in the middle of all those yeah. countries that end in Stan. And Back then, that was um, in the 70s and 80s, it was part of the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union had this grand plan to like literally like bend nature to the will of the Communist Party. And it was supposed to preserve the the environment and also like massively, you know, increase like cotton exports and stuff like that. And the result was a, like like so they implemented this plan and the result was a complete disaster. So, so it was one of our, our best performing wine minutes ever, actually. So if yeah. you if you get a chance, go go take a look at it. No, it's a, it's a good thing. I mean, but the, the short answer to someone like that is like, you, you and I do not disagree on wanting to protect the environment. Right. We don't. The question is, is what's the best way to achieve it? Now, as I look at all the advancements that we've made with respect to uh, being more efficient or being more effective with, re- with the use and allocation of scarce resources, here's what I find. You predominantly get good, sustainable solutions from the marketplace, which is nothing more than millions of people working together right. in voluntary cooperation in order to achieve something. You generally get horrible government mismanagement when you put the power in control of politicians and bureaucrats. So it, it's not that it's not that I don't think we should be concerned about the environment. It's not that I don't think that um, action isn't required. The question is, is where is that action to be placed? Sure. It, it, because if your solution is, we're just going to put the right politicians in, in charge and they'll take care of it. Well, I got news for you. 
the sort of politicians that are advocating the sort of government control that you that you are being told is necessary. Every single time they've those sorts of politicians have been given that power, they run their economy into the ground, and the next thing you know, nobody cares about the environment. Yeah. Starving people do not care about spotted owls. That's a great except point. Except that they taste delicious when you're starving. So if you really want to get to a point where we're concerned about protecting the environment, you have to get to a point where we can actually you know, allow people to protect their property. This is the other thing that you recognize. Mm -hmm. When people are taking care of their own property, they're a lot more careful with it than when it's publicly yeah. owned property. That's called the tragedy of the commons. We should probably do a whole episode on that. Um, so again, the, the argument should not, it, it, this is not a battle between free markets and capitalism versus protecting the environment. Right. What we should do is take free market and capitalism, the greatest economic engine for lifting people out of poverty in the history of you know the world, and apply it toward coming up with more effective, more efficient ways to use scarce resources in order to meet our needs, wants, and desires while doing so in a responsible way. But you're not going to get that if we just put politicians and bureaucrats in, in charge of things right. because they end up they end up engaging in cronyism. They end up engaging in policies that have disastrous, not only economic, but environmental impacts. And then when they fail, do they ever say, oh, gosh, I guess we were wrong. We should try something. No, they always double down and demand more power. Yeah. So that's the biggest thing. If you really care about the environment, you're going to do what's best for the environment, not just what makes you feel better right. about the environment. All righty. Well, I think that's all the time that we have today. Uh, once again, thank you for joining us. We hope you found this episode useful. Again, this is one of, we're going to do another part on this because we want to talk about the Great Reset. But again, we want to talk about the Great Reset and the idea not as um, it, it may have been caricatured. We want to talk about it from the very people that have been advocating for it. And then I'm going to use my experience as a legislator and what I've seen from policy, how I've seen legislation get crafted, how I've seen similar legislation get crafted here in Virginia. And we're going to talk about what they would need to actually do from a legal and regulatory standpoint to achieve what they want. And I think by the time we get done with that, you're going to realize that there is a very, very dark and potentially tragic side to all of this. But maybe not. Maybe you'll think it's a great idea. Anyways, we'll see that. Uh, again, thank you for joining us in this episode. We'll see you next time. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to goodranchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, goodranchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.